This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and today I'm delighted to welcome our guest. He's a a friend of mine and a colleague of mine. He serves as assistant professor of theology and in the School of Divinity at Cairn University, and he has written several books which are helpful. We're going to highlight the second one, although the first one is called God Without Parts. It's on the doctrine of simplicity, but the one we're going to talk about today is called All That Is In God. So, Dr. James Dolezal, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So, I want to briefly talk about uh, this book and what provoked you to write it. What, if you could summarize the argument of the book uh, or the concern of the book, how would you how would you do that? It's a good question. Um, I think if I could if I could distill it down into really its its basic feature, it's the concern that. To some extent, process theism or some variation of process theism has really gained a foothold inside of evangelical thought, not just broadly, but even in evangelical Calvinism. And this is something that I think it took me a while to realize that this was actually happening. But if there's one concern, it's that, that evangelical Calvinism has obviously not without exception, but many have allowed themselves a bit of process theism in order to make God more personal and relatable. So take a step back for us and explain process theism and why it's uh, problematic. And then we'll talk about the ways in which perhaps it's infiltrated. But what is process theism? Good. Um Process theism. I'll, I'll give it. In a, I'll give a sort of um, very basic and rustic version of it, and spare all the elaborate working out. But process theism is basically the view that God's being has both um, features that are absolute and features that are relative. Mainly, so to speak, things that God is and can't be changed. Uh, an unchangeable aspect. Charles Hartshorn will call this the absolute pole of God's existence, but that in addition to God's essence or this absolute pole of being, there's this other pole of God's being that is relative. This is the stuff that God is beginning to be. These are changes that God is going through. Uh, And the sorts of things that produce these changes in God um, are things like creation, and redemption, and hearing and answering prayer, and all the things that might involve change in you, uh, like listening to my voice and responding to me when I speak to you, God has to be changeable in these same ways in order to meaningfully relate to himself to us. At the same time, though, there has to be this sort of core in God that doesn't change. In a nutshell, that's that's process theism. Now, there can be... um, disagreement among process theists as to how much priority is given to the creature in producing change in God, but all forms of process theism believe that there are features of God's being that 
begin to be after previously not having been. So there is real becoming in God, even if there is a constancy of being. Alfred North Whitehead gives us a sort of metaphysical basis for a sort of evolutionary ontology or an ontology of becoming as opposed to being. Uh, but then Charles Hartshorn uh, and then a host of others after him are the ones who really develop that into a full-blown theology as a replacement model for classical theism. So what's the problem with that? You you mentioned that we do experience change. We engage with one another in ways that do change us. We are learning and growing in all kinds of ways. So it, what do you see as the fundamental problems with positing that of God? The fundamental problem with process theism is that it ultimately does not provide a sufficient reason for being. And by that, I mean that if God begins to be what he was not, even even if in non-essential ways, even if in that relative pole of his being, if he begins to be what he was not, then we have to be able to answer the question, where did God get the being, the, the actuality, that he now has but previously did not have? And that question is a question, if you really push that question, it's ultimately a question about the ontological gra sufficient ground for God's being. So that if God begins to be or exist in new ways, even if non-essential new ways, then we have to be able to answer the question, what is the, the ontological source or ground for God's new actuality of being? And as I see it, there are only two options, one of which is theologically uh, objectionable, the other of which is philosophically absurd. The objectionable answer would be that he gets the new actuality of being from the creature. So that, for instance, one of the authors I quote in the book who would certainly not call himself a process theist, uh, in fact, would call himself a Calvinist, says that, and these are his words, as things are now, God's blessedness derives to some extent from the creature. So that if God has a state of happiness or of pleasure, this author is saying, part of what causes that pleasure to be in God is the creature. So in answer to the question, where did God get the newness of being that he now has? One answer could be that he gets it from the creature. So the creature is the ontological cause of some actuality in the being of God. If that's the case, then we are left with the problem of God being both the creator and yet at the same time, also caused to be, in some respect, by his own creature. If that's the case, then God is both God is both creator and then also partly created or caused to be. The other answer that people might want to give is they would say, well, God is his own source of newness of being. The trouble with this, and this gets into the philosophical absurdity, the problem with this is that a thing cannot give what it does not have. So that, like, let's say that God has a blessedness or a state of joy that is new for him and that previously he did not have, but is a new actuality in his being. If God gave this to himself, then God must have already, in some respect, whether virtually uh, or, or formally, possessed 
this state of pleasure, in which case he wouldn't give himself something new. So I, if I if I could illustrate this, if I if I took five dollars out of my left pants pocket and put it in my right hand, will I have just made myself five dollars richer? And we should say no. Uh, in fact, the only way I can give myself five dollars is if I already possess it, or more objectionably, if I go and get it from some other place. God doesn't go and get actuality of being from the creature. He gives being to the creature, but he does not and then in turn receive being from the creature. Why is it theologically objectionable to say that? Uh, it strikes against doctrines like uh, auseity and immutability and self-sufficiency, uh, in which God is the sufficient reason for God. But it also... Uh, maybe more broadly and deeply, it undermines, to say that God derives his being, undermines the reality that for God to be the first be the first being and the cause of all things, God cannot lack actuality. God cannot then in turn be caused to be by something else, because if that were the case, then, to use the words of Romans 11.36, all things would not be from him, through him, and to him, because God himself would in part be from whatever it was that supplied the new actuality to him. So I know that's a mouthful, uh, but in short, that's the objection to process theism. And it's worth saying at this point something that I think you, a point that you make throughout both this book and, and the earlier book that you wrote, which is that this is the classical Christian understanding of God. In other words, all that you've laid out while you've laid it out in terms of responding to process theism, all that you've laid out in terms of an understanding of God is what Christians have taught and understood. And process theism, I mean, quite deliberately in the 20th century, set itself up as an alternative to this view of God as purely and infinitely actual in his being. In fact, they would they would question whether the older understanding of immutability is in fact a perfection. Uh, wouldn't it be more perfect to be able to responsively change vis-a-vis -a, -vis a relationship with creatures? Wouldn't that be more perfect than being unchanging? So they argued that in fact uh, classical theism had a mistaken understanding of what perfection really involved. Perfection for a personal being would involve the ability to respond to the creature in a way in which the creature really did actually move the creator to some new state of thought or feeling or action or what have you. Okay, so process theism is infiltrating in all kinds of sometimes subtle ways and sometimes not so subtle ways, infiltrating evangelical theology and specifically even evangelical Calvinistic theology, which would have all kinds of resources ostensibly to resist that, but, but ha has not in many respects. So what are some of the ways in which this has crept into evangelical theology? And that's really what you're responding to in this book. Yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good question. If there's a dark side uh, to this book, it's the message that, in fact, process theism has really scored a major victory in the theological landscape and within evangelicalism itself. And I think sometimes this gets obscured 
uh, because of the debates with open theism that were going on in the late 90s and, through, and into the early 2000s, in which a number of evangelical Calvinists sort of took up arms, theologically speaking, against open theism, which is a which is a version of process theism, uh, and made the argument that open theism was in fact not even truly Christian. And so the assumption could easily be made, well, that everyone opposing open theism is obviously opposed to process theism uh, as such. And I think that, at least for, speaking for myself, I defaulted to that assumption. Uh, but in probing into this a little more uh, over the last number of years, it seems to me that, in fact, a number of the critics of open theism were not really opposed to the process aspect of open theism. What they were really opposed to was the um, libertarian freedom that open theists tended to ascribe to creatures. For instance, if I could take just one example, uh, Bruce Ware argued in quite a number of books and major articles that that open theism actually made a number of good points and, a, and good claims and that classical theism needed to change and adapt itself to certain uh, demands of open theism, but that the one thing that we couldn't give to the open theists was the notion of free will theism. So that if I can sort of break it down, the debate was not so much between those who denied that God undergoes changes and those that believe God changes, rather Bruce Ware and, and a number of evangelicals with him, uh, including uh, D.A. Carson and John Frame and others, would concede that there are ways in which God does actually change, but that he is ultimately the one authoring the changes. And this is where the debate was. Uh, open theists were saying, no, Creatures are sometimes the primary source of change in God, whereas Ware would say, no, creatures are only the instrumental agents of change in God, and they can only change God insofar as God has willed them to do what they do and to think what they think, and, and etc. So in other words, if we say God is sovereign over the creature, then we can, as long as we have that in place, then we're allowed to say that God can instrumentally ordain the creature to move him to new states of, of actuality. Here's a here's a statement uh, from Bruce Ware. This is from this is from his volume God's Lesser Glory. He says, "Open theists are certainly right to seek to ground and embrace the real relationship between God and His human creatures, particularly His own people. Classical theism is vulnerable at this point and is in need of some correctives." And then he says, however, the classical model can be modified and can sustain the real, vibrant, and reciprocal relationship between God and others. And then he says, what simply is wrong is the notion that to uphold the real relatedness of God with others, one must adopt some newer version of free will theism. And I think we need to understand this. The Calvinist opposition to open theism in the late 90s and early 2000s was not most fundamentally an opposition to process views of God's being. It was an opposition to free will theism. And in fact, Bruce Ware, uh, years earlier, in an article that he wrote in 1985, actually said, speaking of Charles Hartshorn, he said, I think Hartshorn is right to speak of ways in which God may legitimately be thought of as changeable. 
so that he's already in the mid 80s has already conceded to the process theists that we need to retool our doctrine of God in the direction of a God who is ontologically open to becoming what he was not, because all change involves becoming all change involves ontological newness. So this is where this is where it got its foothold uh, in an attempt to sort of um, offer some concessions to open and process theism. Calvinists, in fact, adopted a sort of soft and chastened form of process theism. So then to bring it back full circle, I think one of the responses that many, particularly of the ones whom you mentioned, would give is, okay, but then how do we deal with the biblical statements about God's repentance? Or how do we deal with the question of prayer? Or how do we deal with the question of creation? And I know those are all huge questions, but I wonder if you could just sort of briefly say how the classical tradition or or how you would would try to articulate the way in which we should understand those biblical statements. There are there are biblical statements like Romans 11, as you say, and I think very, very strong. But what about some of those those other incidents recorded in Scripture? Yeah, there are not a few of those. Um, the Bible is replete with references to God changing. In fact, uh, even saying at times, you know, I'm thinking of Exodus 32. So God changed his mind uh, and places where he is said to repent and places where his wrath is said to wax and other places where it is said to wane. So that the representation of scripture with regard to God is in fact quite prolifically mutabilist. Uh, it describes God from a standpoint of change. And in fact, if you read sort of the surface grammar of the text, it might look like God is is an, a, is an agent who is in a reciprocal relationship with the world, sometimes feeling one way and on other and other times feeling other ways. The way that we would respond to that, and I'm, I'm, I can only be very broad here, just in the interest of time, but the way we would respond to that is in many respects the same way we would respond to the many instances in which Scripture describes God as having physical body parts, so that Scripture speaks about God in numerous ways and in numerous places that are technically improper. That is to say, Scripture will speak about God's right arm as if he had medial and distal parts. It will speak about God's nostrils and about God's bowels and about his feet. It will describe God as moving about locomotively in space and time, coming down from heaven to the plain of Shinar. Um, does he literally leave heaven behind and go down to earth only to return later to heaven? Is God a spatial locomotive being uh, who has uh, you know, a right and a left side, who has feet and who has nostrils that smell smoke from altars? And I think generally most, most Calvinists, and even the ones I'm critiquing in this volume, are very happy to say, no, those are anthropomorphisms. The Bible is simply attributing physical features to God in order to convey truth, but not to properly teach that God, in fact, is comprised of, of physical body parts. I would say the same thing is true of the language regard. We should treat in the same way the language regarding change in God. So that when God is said to change his mind or is said to feel in new ways, 
that, that just as we regard the body part type language as an anthropomorphism, we should regard this language as an anthropopathism, if, if you want a $10 word for it, which is attributing human passions and feelings and modalities to God, all the while understanding that God does not, in fact, undergo change and experience and experience time and alteration of being, that this is, in fact, an accommodated way uh, of God speaking to us. And I know the concern and the concern is, well, but if if that's all accommodated and if that's non-literal, then how is it possible that that is even saying anything true about God? And I and I would guess I would want to say in the same way that it's possible that talk about physical body parts is speaking truth about God. Uh, I have one statement in the book where I, I say such improper and non-literal forms of attribution do not obscure the truth about God any more than talk about God's right arm or nostrils obscures the truth about him. In other words, so long as we understand that these are improper or non-literal attributions, we are still able to derive and understand truth from them. So, for instance, when God's anger burns hot, um, what truth are we supposed to understand? That God is really opposed to sin, and that at this moment in time, in which the Bible's recording this wrath for us, he really is manifesting his real opposition to sin at that point in time. But what changes is not God himself intrinsically or ontologically. What changes is the external manifestation of God and dealings of God with creatures in time and in space. And just to, to clarify one small thing, when you use the word improper of the Bible's mm. you know, uh, language, you're not saying it wasn't right for them to use it. You're saying it's not a technically... You know, it's not you being used in that sort of technical or philosophical way. Right, right, yeah. So when I say, you know, when the Bible when the Bible attributes a right arm to God, we say that that's an that's an improper attribution. Not that it ought not be used, but it doesn't it doesn't properly belong to God to have a right side as opposed to a left side, an arm as opposed to say a a, a leg or a shoulder. So that when we say it's improper, again, we don't mean that it's not a legitimate way of using language to convey truth. Of course, it's legitimate for that, but it doesn't it doesn't speak that truth according to that to the proper form of that truth. So if the Bible speaks in these kinds of improper ways about God, it talks about his nostrils, it talks about his right arm, it talks about his changing and his his regretting and these kinds of things. Is it then okay for us to think and pray and and even preach in those kinds of ways? And and if so, how do we sort of hedge that in? I think that we should think that way as long as we understand that we don't properly mean those things. Like I'll, I'll give you the example I use in class uh, is is Solomon at the dedication of the temple when. He's, you know, he's built this wonderful house for God on a hill and he's here leading the people in dedication. And then there's that moment uh, where he stops and he says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Indeed, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much more this house which I have built? And then he picks right up with dedicating the house, <laughs> you right, know. Right, and my right. point is, it's not it's not that God doesn't condescend to dwell in houses made with hands. 
to manifest his presence in houses made with hands. And I would say it's not that God doesn't condescend to convey truth about himself under improper forms of attribution, like nostrils and right arms and changing minds. It's that while we speak this way about God, we, like Solomon, should ha should have this sort of guiding light in the back of our mind that says, I speak this way, but I understand that properly speaking, I haven't captured God with these with this language any more than Solomon captured God when he built that house. Uh, yeah, that's that's really that's a great example. That's a great example because so you can see Solomon even in the in the text sort he's of self conscious. Yes, yes. James, I really wish we had more time, but we are out of time. I want to say to our listeners, though, I don't know that I have ever said before, you know that you absolutely should go out and read a particular book. But I, I want to say that in this case, you really should and you really can read All That Is In God by James Dalzell. It will open your eyes. It will enrich your understanding of who God is and, and ultimately, I think, enrich your reading of Scripture and your worship. James, thanks for all your work. Thanks for your friendship. Great to talk with you and, uh, and appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Our guest today was Dr. James Dolezal, and his new book is called All That Is in God. We'd like to give you the opportunity to get a free copy of that book, and you can do that by going to the website placefortruth.org, clicking on the Theology on the Go link, and at the bottom there will be instructions so that you can enter a drawing to win All That Is in God. We'd love to give that to you as our free gift for listening. The reason these programs are possible is because of gifts from listeners like you. So if you're able to give a gift to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that via placefortruth.org. You can also do it on alliancenet.org, which is the broader site that houses all the Alliance information. We'd love to hear from you as well. Feel free to email us via AllianceNet.org. Tell others about the podcast. And thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.